Have you ever heard of the ABCs of church success? Does this ring a bell with anyone sitting here? There seems to be this unwritten rule among evangelical church thinkers that says, if you have these three things, you are a quote-unquote good church. If you are engaged in these activities, people are going to be running to you to have you write books on how to lead a church. They are the ABCs of church success. They go something like this. A, attendance. If your attendance is high, you're successful. B, buildings. If you have large and growing buildings, you are successful. C, cash. If you've got money in the bank, you are a successful church. The ABCs of church success. And I think most of us would probably intuitively recognize that this isn't the holy story, that this is not what true success is as a church, that you can be a successful church and not have any of these things, and you can have these things and be a very, very unsuccessful church in God's eyes. But I wonder to myself, what would you say is an indication of a successful church? What is an indicator of a healthy church, a vibrant ministry, a faithful ministry? 1 Corinthians 4.2, Paul writes, what is required of a steward except that he be found faithful? What does faithfulness look like for the church? What is success? What is health in the ministry of a church? Maybe you think it's any one of these things. Maybe it's having a vibrant contemporary worship service with exciting music and dynamic activities. Or maybe you think it's having a traditional one complete with choir and pipe organ. I know there's some of you out there. Maybe you think it's having a dynamic, charismatic preacher with a vast social media presence and an international platform to proclaim the gospel. Well, if that's what you think, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, you are sorely disappointed. This is not the right church for you. I do not have a social media presence and I have no international platform. Don't intend to either. More practically, maybe you think it is a church that has a large children's ministry, a large youth ministry, a large college ministry, replete with a lot of young people, and that makes the church exciting and successful. Maybe it's having a thriving small group ministry with every conceivable demographic represented in the groups and opportunities. Or maybe you think it's having enough inter internal or external ministry that every person that calls that church home can have a fulfilling ministry fit. They can find the right place for them. In short, what makes a church healthy? I think we would probably all recognize that there's nothing particularly wrong about any of these things. There's nothing wrong about ministries like this. There's nothing wrong with a pastor with a social media presence. But it also shouldn't be our definition for success in ministry as a church. So what makes a healthy church? That is the topic we want to address, the topic we want to answer in our time together this morning and what I'm going to hopefully spend the next, to be honest, 45 to 50 minutes talking about. Would you pray with me before we dive into that discussion? Father, we're thankful for this morning, for the opportunity to praise you, for the simple opportunity to gather all together that we didn't have last week, but that's an encouragement in and of itself. Father, we're thankful for this church. We're thankful for the fact that you've called us out of darkness and you've called us into the kingdom of your beloved son. Lord, I'm thankful for brothers and sisters in Christ, for the household of God that we can celebrate and glorify you together. I pray that as we study your word today, that you would help us to see the truth of what it teaches, that you would help encourage each and everyone sitting here, and that you would make us a more faithful church 
by our time in your word this morning. Use it to edify your saints and to glorify yourself. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I don't know how many of you have been here for the last couple of weeks as we've begun this sermon series entitled Basi- or Church Basics, but let me give you a refresher course on what we've covered thus far. Two weeks ago, beginning of the year, we started off by answering two questions. We answered first the question, what is the church? We said the church is, the, is God's adopted household, comprised of every redeemed believer. The universal, the invisible church, the believers everywhere are this universal church made up of those that are redeemed, those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. The natural question flew from, or flowed from that, why does the church exist? I said the church exists to glorify God by representing Christ on earth, bringing people into unity under the gospel and collectively pursuing holiness, all by submitting to every command of Christ. We're going to talk about some of those commands in our time together this morning. Then last week we shifted from the universal nature, the everywhere church, to the specific local church. What makes a church We said a local church is a partnering assembly of believers who pursue the church's mission by faithfully proclaiming Christ and rightly practicing his ordinances. That is why believers part together. That is what believers are pursuing. That is what believers are focused on when they gather together as a local assembly, as a local church. This week, we're going to shift focus a little bit. We're going to shift to what makes a healthy church. I've stolen this graph from Wayne Grudem. If you're familiar with his systematic theology book, I think this is helpful to consider. Last week, we were dealing with the question of the left side of the line versus the right side of the line. What is a false church and what is a true church? This week, as we move into what is a healthy church, we're dealing with the right side of that graph. There can be more healthy churches. There can be less healthy churches. There can be more successful and less successful churches. But we're dealing primarily with the right side of the graph, asking the question, what is a healthy church? Now, I admit that probably for some of you, you're tempted to wonder, Brad, what does What does that matter? What difference does that make to me? Isn't that more a question for scholars, for theological nerds, for pastoral conferences, maybe? Let me attempt to give you just a few reasons that I think answering this question is critical for everyone. The first reason is knowing what a healthy church is helps us wisely find a church. Odds are that nearly everyone sitting here today will not have their funeral performed here. The vast majority of us will move, whether it's a work or a school opportunity, and at some point we will move and we will have to look for what is a healthy church, and knowing the basics of what makes a church healthy is helpful in that, as you seek to make a wise decision, and it helps you know what to look for. But secondarily, even if you are here, knowing what a healthy church is helps you cheerfully love Faith Bible Church, because it reminds us that no church is perfect. That every church is some mix of good and bad. Every church is some mix of right and wrong. Every church is some mix of doing things correctly and doing things incorrectly. And then that also helps faithfully serving in a church. Because odds are the areas that you feel most drawn to, the areas that you feel most aware of that are in need, are the areas that God is intending you to minister here at Faith Bible Church. If you look at the passages in the New Testament that talk about spiritual gifts... There's a very good chance that the way God has gifted you, he's intending you to use that gift for the sake of the church. And so as you identify areas that are weak, those are likely areas that God is calling you to contribute and to serve, to pray for and care for the broader church. All of those are reasons that I think we need to study this. We need to understand what makes a healthy church. And to answer that question, I think we need to answer what we see in four gospel-defined relationships in the New Testament. I think defining what a healthy church is can be looked at through these four gospel relationships. 
And these gospel relationships indicate how strong, how healthy, how dynamic or successful a church is. Now, these relationships, which I'll share in just a moment, are described in numerous places, numerous places in the New Testament. Over the course of this week, I looked at the churches of Revelation in Revelation 2 and 3. I read through the history of the early church in the opening books of, or the opening chapters of Acts. I looked at 1 Corinthians and I read through the pastoral epistles trying to wrestle with this question and ultimately I settled on the book of Titus. Now we're going to cover the book of Titus in a little more detail here in a few months, but I'm going to give us a bit of an overview of Titus here this morning. If you're unfamiliar with the book, Titus was written about 63 AD. It was written by the Apostle Paul and he's writing to his friend and pastor, Titus. He wrote to Titus to encourage him in his efforts to establish and strengthen the churches in Crete. Or in Paul's words, Titus 1, verse 5, if you read this, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. It says, in essence, he gives Titus this roadmap for establishing healthy churches. He says, I want you to put these churches in right order, in correct, healthy position for doing ministry. So he begins his letter to Titus with a greeting, though it feels admittedly a bit more like a doxology extolling the virtues of Christ's work. And here in these opening verses, I think we see our first key to church relationships. The first is this relationship between the body and Christ, the relationship between the body and Christ. Let me read verses one through four. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. He highlights this relationship between the body, between the church and Jesus Christ. He lays this foundation that Titus needs to understand. After identifying himself as the author Paul reminds Titus of some key truths. And I'm not going to take time to exhaustively cover these. Again, we'll cover these more in the coming months. But I want to highlight a few things that Paul highlights here. First, you may have noticed he highlights God's divine plan. He highlights how God's plan for the churches in Crete was set before the foundations of the world. God had this plan to redeem a people to establish his church before the foundations of the world were ever laid. That concurs with what we read in Matthew 16 as far as Christ building his church. He also mentions Christ's revealed grace, how this grace was revealed through the person and work of Jesus Christ, how what constitutes the church is Christ and the gospel. He lists off the, the evidences of that, the, the blessing that we have as believers of our eternal hope, verse 2, in hope of eternal life and our absolute dependence upon God as he says grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. In short, Paul starts this letter, this roadmap to what a healthy church is by establishing everything we've talked about the last two weeks here as a church. You see that. He says what creates, what constitutes, what forms the foundation of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation. What Christ did is the foundation that constitutes and creates a church. You can't ever move away from that foundation. But the point that seems critical for Paul is that if the churches are established by an appropriate relationship with Christ, then it stands to figure that they will be built up to health by furthering that relationship. Does it not seem obvious that what he's saying is everything started with the person and work of Jesus Christ, that's not something you move away from to make your church healthy. And so he goes on. 
And he explains that, but first and fundamentally, we have to recognize that one of the aspects of a healthy church is their devotion to Christ. A healthy church, a successful church, first and foremost is focused on their devotion to Jesus Christ, on the health of that relationship, on the strength of that dynamic. They are always focused on what Christ has done, on who Christ is. There's a tendency to think that as we move toward health as a church, we get away from the basic things, like the gospel, and we move on to the how-tos. It's not how Paul sees it. Paul says the best way to lay a foundation to health, uh, health as a church is to remember your relationship with Christ, remember the gospel. Now, I think it's appropriate at this point to ask ourselves the question, well, how would we know that? How do we assess the devotion and the strength of our relationship as a church with Christ? Let me try to give you a few indicators that the New Testament lays out that would help indicate the devotion to Christ. First indicator, an affection for Christ, a body-wide affection for Christ, a love, a zeal, a desire to know him. Let me read this from 1 Peter verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. One of the indicators of a church, an individual that is devoted to Christ, is this sort of affection for Christ. This sort of love and joy, even though you haven't even seen him, you have an affection, you have a draw to Jesus Christ because what he's done for you. First indicator of a devotion to Christ is an affection for Christ, this desire to talk about Christ, this desire to share about Christ, this desire to be with him, to know him, to spend time with him, this sort of devotion to Christ that we talk about. That can manifest itself in all sorts of different ways. I'm not going to tell you precisely what that looks like for you, but let me ask you this question. When the service gets done here this morning, as you walk out that door, are you more excited to have a conversation about the upcoming basketball game or to have a conversation about Jesus? How would you rate your affection for Christ, your desire to talk about him? I can guarantee you that if I were to ask someone who had just in the last month started dating their boyfriend or girlfriend, I would not have to pull teeth to get them to talk about that person, right? And yet for some of us, you're like, well, what would I talk about? Well, do you know him? Do you love him? Do you have an affection for him? An affection for Christ is an indication of a devotion to Christ. Secondarily, the second indicator of a devotion to Christ is an ongoing transformation of thinking more and more like Christ to the point where our thinking, our knowledge, our doctrine becomes more and more like what Christ believes and thinks. A good example of this is found in Jude chapter 3. This is probably a familiar verse to many of you. Jude writes this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Jude writing this letter says, I would love to talk about the common salvation we have, but instead I have to write about doctrine because you're not concerned with what Christ thinks on these things. One of the indications of a devotion to Christ is a desire to think more and more like he does. Not to weigh his thinking against our ideas from the word, but to weigh our thinking against what he has revealed. 
you have an ongoing desire to think more and more like Christ? Do you pursue what God has said about himself in his word so that you might know how to think about things? Or do you say, this is how I think about things, and those parts of the Bible that I disagree with, I'll just get rid of. One of the indications of our devotion to Christ is this desire to think more and more like Christ. So indicator one, an affection for Christ. Indicator two, thinking like Christ. Indication number three, a worship of Christ. There's a couple of places that we could go to. We've already spent some time in Ephesians 5, so I don't want to go back to that, but I find Colossians 3, verse 16 to be really helpful in this respect. Colossians 3, verse 16 says this, that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Does this attitude define you? Does this sort of allowing the word of Christ to dwell in you inspire a worship of Christ in your life? Does it inspire a worship of Christ when we gather together as a church collectively? Are we excited to extol the virtues of Christ, to say back to him how true and how honorable and how worthy he is? There is no way to understand rightly the truth about Christ, to have an affection for him and not have a desire to worship him for who he is. Does your heart long to worship Christ? Is there a devotion to Christ that manifests itself in a desire to worship him? And I don't just mean in the singing, though that's appropriate from Colossians 3.16. Yes, we sing when we come together as a church, but that's not the only way we worship. Is there a hunger to worship Christ as you hear his word read and are amazed by who he is? Is there a desire to worship him as the word is taught? as we gather together and as we encourage and share with one another. All of it should aspire or it should inspire a worship of Christ in us. The very fact that we're here, that we're a redeemed people called together for his purposes should make us worship. Does it for you? Is your heart and your attitude an attitude of worship as you come together? And again, I want to be very clear on this. What this does not mean is external things. You could be truly worshiping and not move a muscle while you're here, and you could be running all over the place and not truly worshiping. I want to be clear on that point. But where's your heart at? Is it an attitude of worship, or are you more concerned with your things than what Christ is focused on? So three indicators of affection for Christ, thinking like Christ, a worship of Christ, and lastly, abiding with Christ. In John 15, verse 5, Christ says these words, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Did you pick up on that? Not apart from me, you can do a little bit. Not apart from you, it might go all right. Because apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing of significance. Our devotion to Christ should produce this abiding, this desire to spend time with Christ, to abide with Christ. Christ? Do you have a hunger to abide with Christ? Do you have a desire to spend time with him? And I think this primarily manifests itself through prayer, through engaging with his word, from hearing from him and responding to him in prayer. What does your prayer life look like? You may say you want to abide with Christ, but practically, do you abide with Christ? Do we abide with Christ? The last few years, prayer is one of the things that we've identified as a church that we're not doing very well on. 
we want to grow in. We'll talk about that more in our time together next week. But this desire to abide with Christ, to spend time with Christ, primarily through prayer, I think is an indicator of the spiritual success and health of a church. That's something that's a priority for us both individually and collectively at Faith Bible Church. I think that's part of the reason in Acts 2.42 in the list of what the earthly church was engaged in, one of the things that's listed is they devoted themselves to prayer, spending time with Christ. A church's health is revealed by the strength of their individual and collective relationship with Christ. The strength of that vertical component keeping our eyes fixed on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it's not shocking to us, if you read through the churches of Revelation, which would be an encouraging read for you this afternoon, you find that one of the chief criticisms of the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, 1 through 7, is that they are loveless. Christ, speaking to that church in Revelation 2, looks at that church and he says, you have forsaken your first love. You have lost your devotion to Jesus Christ. You have lost your affection for Jesus Christ. You're doing all sorts of wonderful things. But there's no love for me in it. It's a real danger in a church to engage in any number of different activities and lose the affection and devotion they have for Jesus Christ. Lose the priority of the vertical relationship with Christ first and foremost. So let me ask you again, how are you doing? How are we doing on these four indicators of health? Is the vertical relationship with Jesus Christ good? Or is it bad? Do we spend time yearning to spend time with Jesus Christ, or has it kind of fallen on hard times? What does your affection for Christ look like? What is your desire to speak of him and to share him and to talk about him? Is there an ongoing and growing affection for Jesus Christ that others could identify in your life? If someone were to walk in here and they didn't know Jesus, would there be this evident affection for Christ in our gatherings together as a church? Could somebody tell? How about this growth in our thinking like Christ? I know there's a tendency for some of us to think that theology is just something for somebody else somewhere else. But theology, the actual root of the word, is this study of God. Do you have a hunger and a desire to know more about God? When you have an opportunity to study the Bible, when you have an opportunity to attend a class, is there a desire to go? Or are you like, yeah, it really make a difference. How about your worship of Christ? Is worship an ongoing activity in your life? Or is it something that finds about an hour of your time on Sunday morning? Is your life typified by this ongoing living sacrifice that Romans 12 talks about? Or do you struggle to block out an hour or two for Jesus every week? Do we long to collectively worship Jesus? to teach his word, to hear his word read, to pray to him, to spend time with him, to sing to him? Do we long to abide with Christ? Do you get done with your quiet times in the morning and go, you know, I wish I'd just have another five minutes? Or do you find yourself going, well, got that done. Now, my point here isn't just to make us feel guilty. My point isn't to make us all feel terrible because we're not doing these things right. But the question is, if there is an area of weakness in your life, is there, if there is an area of weakness in our church, are you praying that God would fix it? 
Are you asking that God, through his power, would increase and restore that vertical relationship with Jesus that's lacking? That's where it starts. To be a healthy church, we have to start by assessing our vertical relationship with Jesus Christ. The health of Faith Bible Church will be greatly determined by our individual and collective relationship with Christ. Is that relationship healthy for you? Is that relationship healthy for us? And while that's the foundational relationship, it's not the only important relationship in the church. Flowing from that relationship, Paul goes on to talk about a second key relationship for a healthy church. The relationship of the body to the elders. You'll notice in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16, it's a discussion about elders. Immediately following Christ's exaltation, or the Christ-exalting salutation, Paul goes on to move into the significance of faithful elders in a church. Let me just highlight a few things that we see here. In verses 5 through 9, he talks about what a qualified biblical elder is. And it's worth noting in verse 5, he starts off by saying, what is the thing that helps put the church in order? Well, look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And what was the first step of that? And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now again, when we get to the book of Titus, we'll talk more about the qualifications here for elders. But it's worth noting that one of the foundational principles to make the church healthy that Paul gives Titus is establishing godly elders. And what are those godly elders supposed to do? Well, look at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. The mandate here, the reason the elders are established, is for biblical instruction, to teach and to preach to the church. We're going to talk about that here in just one moment. He highlights in verses 10 through 16 the danger of false teachers and what is out there, and that's an important thing to note. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But what's worth noting here in this section is he highlights this relationship between the body and the elders. A healthy church is led by biblical elders. It's led through the Word of God. It's led through the instruction of the Word of God. Now, let me give you some indicators of what would indicate that. What are some things that would show us that a church is healthy in this respect? The first is, are, or is there biblical instruction taking place? I know that would seem to probably go without saying, right? Titus 1, verse 9 says, teach the Bible. You could go anywhere through 1 Timothy, for 2 Timothy, through any places throughout the New Testament, and one of the primary roles of the elders that are talked about again and again is biblical restruction. The mandate of the elders is to do what? To teach the word. In fact, in Acts chapter 6, when we get the prototype deacons, which we'll talk about here in just one moment, the reason deacons are established is so that the elders won't be distracted from teaching. The elders are to teach and to preach. We'll talk about the implications of that here in just a moment. So the elder responsibility is to teach the word. But the interplay in this relationship is not only teaching the word, but responding to the word. Now, I'm not going to throw this scripture up on the screen, but turn to the right, just a couple of pages in your Bibles, to the book of Hebrews. I know this is an interesting passage to read, but I think you'll understand what I mean here in just a moment. At the end of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 13, we see an interesting dynamic. We've talked about the elders needing to preach and instruct through the word, in Hebrews 13, verses 17 and 18, we saw the church's response to that instruction. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, 
For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. It's fascinating that, like I said, in Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 6, when the deacons are established, the reason they establish deacons is because the elders are getting distracted. And they said, rather than serving tables, rather than waiting tables, we are going to focus on two things, the ministry of the word, preaching the word of God, and prayer, praying for the body. And then here at the end of Hebrews, the body's encouraged to do what? To respond obediently to that teaching and to what? Pray for their elders. You see how the strength is found in the inner play between these two roles? Elders are to teach and to pray. The body is to respond to the word and to pray. If that is going on, then you have what I believe Acts 2.42 talks about as far as a mutual devotion to the apostles' teaching. In Acts 2.42, when the church was gathering together, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The elders are devoted to the apostles' teaching, they're teaching it. If the body is devoted to the apostles' teaching, they're responding obediently to it. This is one of the indicators of health in a church. But I think that point can also be appropriately broadened to include more than just elders in the church. It's worth noting, and I'm not going to have us turn here, but it's worth noting that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, one of the things we find is a very similar discussion when Paul is writing to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 3, he starts off by listing the same qualifications for elders that we find in Titus. But then he goes on, and in the later part of that chapter, he talks about deacons as well. Now, why is that important? Why is establishing church governance or adding deacons to the equation important for the sake of the church? Well, precisely what we've talked about, if the elders are to be focused on what they're called to do, to teach the word and pray for the body, then deacons free them up to do that activity. So what's necessarily true from that is if you don't have biblical governance, if you don't have deacons doing what they're supposed to be doing, the elders are going to be distracted by putting out fires. They're going to be running around trying to address all these other ministry activities and programs and feeding the poor and all these other things, and they're going to be distracted from the ministry of the Word. And so deacons are established. And so in Timothy, when Paul's writing that to Timothy, he says, make sure you have healthy elders, make sure you have faithful deacons. And when the two work together, you have faithful biblical governance and you have a church that is primed for success. It's one of the indicators, I think, of this sort of appropriate relationship between the body and the elders. So secondarily, in addition to the vertical relationship of Christ and the body, the church's health is also revealed by the vitality of the instructional relationship between the elders and the body. By the appropriate teaching of the word, the support so that that can take place and the body's response to that. Which is why Christ critiques the church of Pergamum in Revelations 2, verses 12 through 17, saying, you've bought into the lies of the Nicolaitans. You are compromising on the truth. Something has broken down in this relationship. Either the elders aren't teaching the truth, or the body isn't responding to the truth, but something is broken here. And as a result, you're ascribing to this false teaching. So, how are you doing? How are we doing in these areas? How are we doing in the area of biblical instruction? How are we doing in the area of biblical governance? Is this dynamic between the body and the elders healthy? Or is that a weakness for Faith Bible Church? Is that something that you are actively pursuing or is that something you struggle with? I may have a personal opinion on the biblical instruction piece. I sure hope some of that is taking place here. 
that takes place in all sorts of different environments and places throughout the week as well. It's not just here. What is your assessment of that? And when the elders and pastors get overburdened by ministry of the word and prayer and they're engaged in other activities, do you have people that are faithfully ready to take on the reins to relieve that so that our elders and pastors can focus on what they're called to do? Is there a healthy relationship between the body and the elders? The health of Faith Bible Church will be greatly affected by how far our church design matches the biblical model that's laid out in Scripture and what this interaction between the elders and the body looks like. How are we doing? But Scripture doesn't just place a premium on this relationship between the body and elders. In fact, arguably, more emphasis in the New Testament is actually placed on a third relationship, the relationship of the body and believers, the body to itself, if you will. We see this in chapter 2 of Titus. Having established the role of elders, Paul then moves on to describe what discipling relationships should look like in the, in the church. And again, we'll talk about this in more detail in just a moment, but he starts off by saying, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he highlights four specific audiences and the way they're supposed to respond to this teaching that the elders are giving. He talks about older men in verse 2, talking about how they are a model, good behavior, and dignified, mature behavior. Then in verses 3 through 5, he talks to older women and how they're to model good behavior and to teach it to younger women. In verses 6 through 8, he talks to younger men and the way they're supposed to be self-controlled and respond to that sort of leadership. And then he addresses slaves in verses 9 and 10 and how they're not to be pilfering and stealing things and arguing all the time. And again, we'll talk about that in more detail later. What I don't think Paul is trying to do here is provide an exhaustive list to this church. Of every age and stage you could be in, he's trying to give instruction. I don't think that's the point. I think he's trying to give a summary, because it's not as if he's like, well, there's no young women in your church, so we can't talk to them. I think that's very unlikely. Instead, he's, he's speaking to the way our attitudes and actions should indicate a heart and a desire to edify those around us. It's revealed in his summary here at the end in verses 11 through 14, where he talks about growth and holiness. Look at verse 11. But the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. These interactions within the body, the way we model for and care for one another, ought to result in holy living. He's talking about discipleship. He's talking about these relationships that promote holiness and maturity amongst the body. And obviously his point is that a healthy church is faithfully discipling each other. Not just teaching coming from the elders, not just the responsibility of the elders, but the body is engaged in this sort of mutual encouragement and edification. He lays the primary mandate for discipleship on the body to each other. Well, what would this look like? What would be some indicators that a church is faithfully discipling each other? Let's look at a couple of other passages and see what we see there. First indicator, I think, would be there is biblical fellowship taking place. Now, you have to understand that when I use this word, I recognize that a lot of people don't know what I mean. We think fellowship and we think, well, you know, I got together and watched a football game with my friend the other day and he happens to be a believer, so fellowship. That's not what the word actually means. 
The word koinonia is the idea of a joint participation. It's a joint ownership and care for that person. In some ways, it's the reverse of what we saw between Cain and Abel in Genesis. In Cain and Abel, Cain kills his brother Abel because he's jealous of him. And when God comes to him, he says, what's happening? Where's your brother? And what does Cain say? He says, am I my brother's keeper? I'm not worried about Cain or Abel, excuse me. Fellowship does the exact opposite. It says, I am my brother's keeper. When I am participating and sharing fellowship with other believers, I do have a responsibility for their health. I do have a responsibility to care for them. I do have a responsibility to invest in their lives. That's biblical fellowship. This care and this participation, this ownership. I'm going to talk about 1 John a little bit more, but 1 John 1 verse 7 talks about this theme just a little bit. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, earlier in that chapter, John is talking about how there is fellowship with God first and foremost through the gospel. But then he says, now there's fellowship and joint participation amongst each other. And the end result of all of that is the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Just like Titus here, there's this mutual upbuilding and there's this holy living, there's this maturity. Which is why in Acts 2.42, we read that the early church also devoted themselves to fellowship. It's an essential aspect of what identifies a church that is faithfully discipling each other. And if you want to know what that looks like, read any number of the one another's in Scripture. The church is to be engaged in building each other up, in loving each other, in serving each other, in forgiving each other, in caring for each other, in being hospitable to each other. You could just go on and on and on. Biblical fellowship indicates that there is faithful discipleship going on. But a second indication, and maybe the flip side of the coin, is this idea of church discipline. This corrective, so there's this building up aspect, but there's also this corrective aspect. Now, I'm not going to belabor the point because we've talked about this in the last few weeks. We've talked about Matthew chapter 18. We've talked about 1 Corinthians back when we were going through that. But it's the idea of loving correction. The idea of positive reinforcement to build up, but also negative reinforcement, what that's required, being these buffers to help guide people in the way they should go. Odds are in your home or your parents are providing some of both to you, I hope. Positive encouragement and negative reinforcement when that takes place. Probably your teachers did that. Probably your bosses have done that. Just the nature of the beast. So two indicators of faithful discipleship in a church are biblical fellowship focused on seeing people conform to the image of Christ and practical church discipline as people correct and encourage and challenge one another. And we tend to think that this all means stage three, putting someone out of the church, but most of what takes place when it comes to church discipline is just a word of correction in the moment. When you said this, it did this. When you acted like this, it did this. I think that was out of line. That's where most of that should be taking place, and most of that should be among the body. It's an indication that there is faithful discipleship taking place. So third, in addition to this relationship between Christ and the body, and in addition between the body and the elders, there's also... The fact that the church's health is indicated by the discipling relationships between members. The church is called to disciple the church. And I think we see this revealed in Christ's critique of Thyatira in Revelation. In Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29, we see that the church had failed to do this. Christ steps in and he says, there's this lady who is operating and she's living in obvious rebellion against Christ and you're not doing anything. No one's correcting it. No one's discipling her. 
So he calls them to be more intolerant of sin in their church. So how are you doing? How are we doing in these two areas? If someone were to visit our church, would they say this is a church where biblical fellowship is alive and well? This is a church where people are longing to see each other conform to the image of Christ. Let me ask you a practical question. Is fellowship a joy or is it an inconvenience in our church for you? When the service breaks up, do you seek to slip out the back as quickly as you can so you won't be slowed down by any extra grace required individuals? It's a loving way to put it, I know that. Or do you intentionally linger in the hopes that you can have an edifying conversation with someone? Are you eager to invest in the challenges and needs in someone's life, or do you find yourself going, no, I'm just really busy with my own stuff? Will fellowship be messy? Absolutely. Will it be hard? Absolutely. Will it invite you into other people's problems? Absolutely. But it's an indication that a church is discipling one another. How is your fellowship? How is your contribution to this discipling indicator of health in our church? How about church discipline? Are you open and honest about your challenges? Do you allow other people to speak into your life or do you seek to hide everything so that nobody knows about it? When someone corrects you, how do you approach that? How do you respond to that? They're both indicators of whether a church is really serious about discipling one another. Are we, as a church, really serious about discipling one another? It takes time. It takes energy. It's not convenient, but it's an indication of church health. Which leaves us just one final relationship. This final relationship which flows out of the strength of all three of these other relationships, that of the body and the world. So Paul wraps up in Titus with chapter 3 by talking about the way the church should respond to the world. And to highlight this relationship, he gives them just a bit of a history lesson. He reminds them of where they came from. He starts by saying, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This should be your attitude toward the world. This should be the way you respond to the world, authorities and others, any number of different people. But we should respond with this sort of attitude. Why? Because we should sympathize with where they're at. Verse 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. He goes on to explain that in more detail. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Because the reason you should have sympathy for the world is because you should recognize that you are just like them. It's funny because sometimes people will talk about the church as this place where hypocrites go. A bunch of people that think they're better than everyone else. And it can be true, don't get me wrong. But we're not here fundamentally because we think we're better than anybody else. The difference is we recognize that we're messed up. That's why we're here. He says you should have a sympathetic attitude toward the world because you yourselves were rescued. And this is the section that Mike just read. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. This can be your attitude toward the world 
Because you know exactly what they're going through because you used to walk that way until Christ plucked you out. And he saved you. He rescued you. He redeemed you. And so you have to be conscious of your attitude toward the world because you should have an impact on the world. He goes on in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And I want you to be careful about the way you approach the world around you because you are to have an impact on them. There's a tendency as believers to retreat from the world, to think we need to insulate ourselves as if we might be contagious or they might be contagious. That's not how Paul views it here. He says you are to have a proactive relationship with the world, recognizing you are just like them except for the grace of God. So one of the indications of a healthy church is a conscious reaching out toward the lost. A conscious, proactive reaching out, saying, we exist here partially to go get them. Not to protect ourselves from them. In the world, not of the world. Now, what are some indicators of this? What shows that a church is engaging in this? The first I would say, and it seems to go without saying, but it is practical love. You have a practical, sacrificial love for the world for those unbelievers that are near you, for those unbelievers that you have an opportunity to share with. And we just read Titus 1, verses 1 or 3, verses 1 through 8, that talked about doing good works and approaching the world. So I think Galatians 6, verse 10 is worth at least spending a little bit of time on. Here in Galatians 6, verse 10, Paul writes... You want to give me the next? Oh, thank you. There, there we go. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. He highlights the need to do good for those inside the church. That comes kind of second nature. But he says we should be seeking opportunities to do good for the world. We should be proactive about providing opportunities to do things that are beneficial to them. I love how Pastor Tom used to say, people don't know how much or don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Do your neighbors, do your friends, do your coworkers, do your fellow students, do they know how much you care? Have you practically, sacrificially shown that to them? And obviously that is followed up by a biblical witness. We can't stop at just practical love because even if you help someone in this world, if it does no eternal difference for them, you're really short-sighted. So the second indicator would be a biblical witness. One last turn in your Bible to the left to Matthew chapter 5. Turn to the left in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Paul's words, or not Paul's words, Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount I think are really instructive for us. And you probably know this text. But what ought our biblical witness to look like? What ought our church's biblical witness to look like? In Matthew chapter 5 verse 13, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." really worth noting what Jesus highlights here. And it's funny because all things, sorts of things have been done with this text. to be like, this is the nation. And they're like, no, America is not the light. 
is not the soul. This is talking to believers. This is talking to the church about sharing the gospel. He tells them that they should live in such a way and share in such a way that it has an impact on the world and the world sees their good works and gives glory to the Father. Is your practical love, is your biblical witness such that people could understand the gospel and come to a saving faith and give glory to the Father because of what you've done? Not because we can win people to Christ, it's not our task, but we are called to be faithful in our biblical witness. Are we? Is this something we're pursuing? Is this an indication of health here at Faith Bible Church for us as individuals and corporately as a church? Because one of the final indicators of health for the church is this posture toward an evangelism of the world. Are we a church that can be defined by our posture of love toward the world and our proactive seeking of the lost? It's an indication of health. And it's what the church at Sardis was accused of not doing in Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. Christ, writing to the church in Sardis, says, You are dead. You have not fulfilled the good works that I prepared for you. You have been unfaithful in this area. Wake up. Is that a rebuke that we would get as a church? That we have been lackadaisical in our approach toward the world? That our love for the world and our witness to the world we've been complacent on? How are we doing in these areas? How are you doing in these areas? What is your mindset and your approach to the world? Are you proactive in your practical love, looking for opportunities to win relationship with them so they can, you can share with them why you believe what you believe? Or are you busy trying to insulate yourself from the world, trying to not get infected by them? How about your biblical witness? When you have the opportunity to give a defense, a reason for the hope that you have, do you take that opportunity? Or are you more worried about your reputation? And I'm not talking to just you. I promise you, just because I'm a pastor, it doesn't mean that's any easier. In fact, a lot of times when I introduce myself to people, they're like, what do you do? And I'm like, eh, I don't really know if I want to tell you I'm a pastor. A lot of people stop talking to you when they, when they find out you're a pastor. But our posture toward the world is indicated in the way we love them and the way we share the gospel with them. Do we? Truly? The health of Faith Bible Church is revealed in our love for an evangelism of the world. It's one of the things that indicates whether our church is healthy. It's one of the things that indicates whether any church is healthy. Now, at this point, I'm sure additional considerations could be added to this list. I'm sure we could add extra things, extra relationships, or extra indicators that would tell us what a church is as far as healthy or not, but I think this is a good place to start. I think if we look at our church and look at other churches through this lens, of what is the relationship between the body and Christ? Is there an evidence of affection for Christ? A desire to think more and more like Christ? This worship of Christ and a desire to abide with Him? Or has their love run cold? Has our love run cold? What does the relationship between the body and the elders look like? Is there biblical instruction being given and is it being responded to in prayer by the body? Is there a desire for the structure to operate in such a way that the word can be taught and other roles can be taken by other people? 
Is the relationship between the body and the elders healthy? Is it healthy here? Thirdly, is the relationship between the body and other body members healthy? Are we pursuing this sort of fellowship and dedication to each other, this sort of discipleship of each other? Are we pursuing other people to see them conform to the image of Christ? Or are we all in our own little huddles? Are we willing to say things that are challenging at times? Or are we willing to risk our reputation? And then lastly, what is our relationship between the body and the world? Do we have a practical love and a witness seeking to see people one for the sake of the gospel? All of these things indicate where the church is at. So I come back to where I originally started. What is a healthy church? This is the best shot I had at a definition for a healthy church. I hope it's helpful. A healthy church is completely devoted to Christ, biblically led by elders, faithfully discipling each other, and relentlessly pursuing the lost. As you seek to understand what is a healthy church, I think this is helpful. A healthy church is completely devoted to Christ. It is biblically led by elders. It is faithfully discipling each other, and it is relentlessly pursuing the lost. By the grace of God, our desire is to be that kind of a church here at Faith Bible. If you want to know a little bit more, next week I'm going to be sharing some of what the elders think on this. I'm going to be sharing our assessment of this paradigm, what we think we've been good at, what we think we've been bad at, and where we think we're going over the next few years. I'd encourage you not to miss next week's message as I'll be sharing some of that information with the church. Would you pray with me? Father, it is so humbling to acknowledge that you have chosen to call sinful people who didn't love you into your kingdom. That you have chosen to use fallen men and women who are so useless apart from the Holy Spirit and your word. You've chosen to gather us together in a church that you've chosen to use us to proclaim the gospel to the world. What an incredible privilege. What a daunting reality. Father, we collectively pray as a church that you would make us a healthy church, that you would make us focused on your definition of success, that you would make us a church that is pure and is desiring to pursue you with everything we have. Father, help us individually and help us collectively to be the church you're calling us to be. That one day we would hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our desire, that's our hope, and we desperately need your help. We pray that you would do it for your glory and for the good of the lost. In Jesus' name.